0: My friends, it is a strange Sunday, poised at the apex of a very big unknown, at a time when unknowing is already something that is a constant for all of us. And we've learned to be leery of predicting election results. People can say one thing on the way in and do quite another, hang. Chad's can hang. Social media can blow up a hurricane of dubious but inflammatory energy in less than a 24-hour cycle. And as Barton Gelman pointed out in his much-discussed article, The Election That Could Break America in this month's Atlantic Monthly, there are legal mechanisms for subverting the election process that exist and rely on the honor and integrity of the sitting president not to use them. So, we sit poised. Strange Sunday though it is, it also feels like an important moment to begin doing what I would call some reorienting of the soul. Some turning of our energies toward a posture in particular of healing and hope. Because we will need both, animating us as a nation, no matter what happens on Tuesday and the days to follow. I think it's a good sign that there is growing hunger in the nation. I think there is for both of those things, healing and hope. Though our passions can be whipped up and our angers and resentments and our hatred and our fears too, such a life, as we have learned, is exhausting. Four and really more than four years of national reactivity, uncivil conversation, entrenched ways of being in relationship to people that we increasingly see and judge as on our team or not, well, you and I can look out over the bunkers from all this warring and see the results. A kind of scorched landscape stands around us and between us. I don't need to detail what that means in terms of our institutions, enlightened policies that had long-term objectives of preservation and strengthening, both here and abroad, that have been eviscerated or tied up in infighting. I don't need to detail what it means for our literal health, spiritual, economic, physical, the health of our people in this nation. I don't need to detail what it means in terms of our relationships with one another, stranger, neighbor, family. You know what it means. Fill in the mad lib of the state of the nation with your set of chosen nouns and proper nouns and numbers and adverbs and descriptive adjectives. It all adds up to some varied version of scorched landscape that we describe. So, I think more than a few of us are feeling some sadness and maybe even despair these days. Maybe we have been for a while, and that's good. My mother used to say that, that despair was good sometimes that we needed to feel it in order to get to doing the hard work of changing the hard things. So feel the despair because it will call us, it does call us to the hard work ahead. In that sense, you and I are primed for hope and healing, my friends. That's the good news of all that we have been through. We know the price of not transforming how we are together in relationship, as a nation. We know some of what we do not want to be going forward. Now to talk about what we do want to be, who and what we want for ourselves and this nation. And here is the crucial word what we want to be together. This week, I watched a documentary, actually I watched it twice, featuring historian and journalist and author John Meacham. The documentary is entitled The Soul of America. It's the same title as Meacham's 2018 book, The Soul of America, subtitle The Battle for Our Better, Better Angels, Meacham, it turns out, was asked to write a piece for Time magazine right after the Charlottesville riots. The question in the air was, has it ever been this bad before? Has the nation ever been so divided? And his piece began to look at those times when the answer was yes. And how we as a nation got through those moments to a place more worthy of our best ideals. The title of Meacham's book, of course, echoes intentionally two such moments in history. First, words from the civil rights movement, King's words, his regular exhortation at that time that we see what we do in such moments as reorienting our nation's life so as to redeem the soul of America. And second, the subtitle of Meacham's book, The Battle for Our Better Better Angels, echoes, of course, Abraham Lincoln's words spoken at his first inaugural address in March of 1861. And this echo feels timely also. In that address, as you know, Lincoln was busy working to avoid a civil war the one that ultimately took place and tore the nation apart. And in that spirit, he ended the speech that day with these words. He said, I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. Low moments in our nation's history, it turns out, have turned for the better with amazing and surprising, in some cases, regularity because of two ingredients that seem to always be present to pull us back from the abyss and knit us back together. First, these moments have turned on some people, some remembering a higher ideal and then holding the nation accountable to it. And second, these precarious moments have turned on stubborn, strategic armies of good, ordinary citizens organizing, advocating, swaying their fellow citizens and voting for change. That's how we, the people, have redeemed the soul of our nation from regular journeys off the cliffs of ignorance and misguided passions. Politics has always been one long cautionary tale, hasn't it, about how to wield power or not, even when you have the votes. Technically, of course, 51% 51% of the vote is often licensed enough for some change. Do you know what they say about the vote for ministers that are called to a congregation, by the way? They tell us not to accept less than a 90% affirmative vote. The conventional wisdom of lay people and and called leaders alike is that if you don't have that, you won't have the collective power and goodwill to make lasting healthy change. Did you know that when you voted for your senior minister that we had to hit that threshold? Did they tell you what we learned? That our version of power with, of power for one another requires immense trust and goodwill. But isn't it also true of any other democratic process or body that has any chance of working for health? That it seeks to have that same critical mass of shared goal. Yet in our nation of late, too much of elections have looked like what theologians and political scientists and social psychologists would call power over coercive power. We have fallen into a pattern of victor shoves as much down the throat of loser as they can for as long as they can. One builds up to have their work torn down, the other builds up to have the same happen in this seesawing of power as administrations change and nothing goes anywhere lasting. It can always feel good in the moment, to take a victory and then wield it like a club. That's why it happens so much. But anything done by coercion, even parenting, anything done by coercion is always followed by seeming adherence to what is forced, but then resentment, resistance, and ultimately, revenge. And power over, after all, is also one sign of an age-old, spiritually dangerous mistake going on. The thing we call othering. Othering is that thing we see happening when the world, the universe gets broken up into us and them and one of those groups gets graciousness and loyalty and the other gets treated as some subhuman and exploitable and abusable. Othering? Othering is actually exactly what our first principle as Unitarian Universalists stands to protect us against, to call us beyond. We believe in the inherent worth and dignity of all people. If our principles stopped there, we would have a lifetime of spiritual work to do. And work in the world. And actually, if you look closely at all of our other principles as Unitarian Universalists, what you will find, I think, arguably, is that everything else we believe and commit to follows from that principle. But that's a sermon for another day. The other day some of us went to the march that was organized in part by some of our own phenomenal leaders in the congregation. The ones who are going to make the rally happen again this week on the steps. Our phenomenal leaders who wanted to make sure that our institutional voice and our power to literally stand witness to our values in the world world is something we do as a community and do in partnership. Last Saturday was this March for Democracy, a march to urge for the protection of everybody's vote, that the votes needed to be counted, urging people to vote, A hundred years and two and a half months ago, 50% of Americans were granted the right to vote. We are still fighting against voter suppression. We have ballot initiatives about restoring the vote to people and their chance to participate fully in society. In fact, just this week, Melvin Stark sent me this amazing video of Martin Luther King speaking. I posted it to my Facebook page. He's speaking and it could be right now, talking about what a crucial moment it is. And then at the very end, he says something like, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, you know how to vote. I just want to tell you to vote. Well, this was the spirit in which I entered the march and others did too. And some of the organizers had conceived of it. Enough with division, enough with us and them. Let's unite behind the democratic right to vote, the call even of the people whose vote is different from mine to show up at the polls because we believe in this, to trust their conscience and to know that we'll find a way back to each other when all this is over. Well, other people in the march had a different idea of what they wanted to have happen And one person in particular started to scream partisan politics through a megaphone. At one low point, all this person screamed was an expletive followed by a candidate's name. An expletive followed by a candidate's name. And let me be clear, I'm not a fan of the candidate whose name they were yelling. But I am at this point also not a fan of the way we are not in conversation in this nation. Not reaching across the divides, repeating the abusive paradigm, listening to John Meacham talk in measured ways about who we should be as a nation, no partisan politics named, listening To former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Samantha Power, do the keynote address for the 80th anniversary gala for the UU Service Committee, which you can find online. And it's so worth watching this brilliant, measured woman, clear, engaged, and ready to debate in respectful ways toward a conversation about what the better angels of our nation might look like. All of that is so appealing to me right now. And it so doesn't look like that megaphone chant and a hundred other examples on every side of the debate. And it won't be a victory for Democrats and Republicans who use that approach of power over to just continue to stuff policy down their losing opponents throats. I don't want that America anymore. I have seen from the bunkers the stark and scorched landscape it leaves behind, and so have you. My colleague and adored friend, the Reverend Liz Lerner McClay, who is the senior minister at the First Unitarian Church in Providence, Rhode Island shared a story with her congregation last week that I want to share with you. Just one story of hope and healing animating one person's set of choices or a group of people ultimately. I want to offer it as we start to think about how it might feel to look and move through the world with this energy as our vital animating spark. So this story is all Reverend McClay's words shared with her permission. She writes, when the renowned director and dramaturge Oscar Eustace spoke in this space, she's speaking of First Unitarian in Providence, a couple of years ago as a guest of the Providence Athenaeum, he talked about what he believes the role of theater is in civilization in democratic society in particular. Mr. Eustace, who's now the director of public theater in New York, has as one of his triumphs, a little show you may have heard of called Hamilton. You may remember that some years ago, right after our current president and vice president were elected, Mike Pence went to see Hamilton. After the show, during the curtain call, the cast read a brief message to then VP-elect Pence, thanking him for attending pointing out that the show and its cast represent the rich, racial, and cultural diversity of America, and letting him know that they were afraid that the new administration would not support them in all of their variety, defend all of their inalienable rights. They hoped the show had inspired him to uphold the show's American values and to uphold all of them. The new president elect immediately condemned their message as harassing and rude and his supporters immediately called for Hamilton's boycott, hoping to shut the show down. And of course that didn't happen. And Hamilton continued to be one of the hottest and hardest tickets to get on Broadway But when Mr. Eustace told this story, he said, here's the thing. We, Hamilton, had already boycotted them. Wait, what? Yes. He said, the people who were declaring they would boycott would never have come anyway. They couldn't afford it. They couldn't get into it. The play wasn't for them. Mr. Eustace realized he and the team who had produced Hamilton had also failed all those people left outside its reach. So they produced another play, Sweat, a Pulitzer Prize winning drama about the struggles for work and dignity in Reading, Pennsylvania, and they sent They sent the play with its Broadway performers, not on the usual tour through major US cities, but on tour across the Rust Belt, also known especially right now as the Swing States, Erie, Pennsylvania, Ashtabula, Ohio, Saginaw, Michigan, Hayward, Wisconsin. They reached out, sent the play to its people who had gone so long unserved, unserved by the arts in the same ways that they had been economically abandoned, ignored, even shunned. This play about race and poverty in steel towns in Pennsylvania toured where people could recognize themselves in it, And people came, white people came, black people came, and they engaged with the play, with each other. In group gatherings after the show, they opened up to each other and they often wept because they felt heard, not schooled, not censured, not attacked or criticized, heard. Mr. Eustace said the play was about losing the town's identity and their feeling of belonging, not to the future, but to the past. And that is what allowed for the opening and the deepening in the discussions after each performance. The opening and the deepening that were opportunities, moments for growth or change or even transformation And that is how they are one. By listening rather than speaking, by showing respect and compassion to people who are struggling. What Sweat did was respectful, compassionate, ultimately cathartic. It even allowed space and for an energy that progressives can't afford to lose sight of, McClay writes, joy, catching each other up in the beauty and the power of our possibilities and commitments and care together. John Meacham at the end of his documentary says that there are core values that are vital to leadership vital also to ordinary citizenship he says they are these curiosity the desire to want to listen to and understand what another even and especially someone who disagrees with you believes and why humility That amazing ability to admit when you're wrong and change your mind, something he said some of the greatest moments of history have been about when leaders have changed their minds. Think Woodrow Wilson, walking by suffragettes from the day before he was inaugurated, having them imprisoned and force-fed during his administration and finally seeing things differently admitting he had changed his mind and signing women's right to vote into law. Third, Meacham says, is empathy. Staying open and interested in another's experience, reaching toward them and finding places where our needs and cares and worries overlap and building from there with respect. And dare I say, love. Power with. It requires that we all enter with that new guiding spirit at the heart of what we do. Those disciplines of citizenship that Meacham names hope and healing as our objective. And it is time for all our sakes that we reclaim all of this. Gather it as what we need, strap it to our backs, tattoo it on our hearts as we set across the scorched landscapes all around us to meet who waits for us on the other side or maybe just right next door. As Sufi mystic Rumi wrote, out beyond the landscapes of right-doing and wrong-doing, there is a garden. I will meet you there. As Abraham Lincoln said, we must not be enemies, though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. All over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. And to paraphrase and draw courage from the poet Sheena Pugh with forgiveness from her, sometimes things don't go after all, from bad to worse. Some years, Muscadel faces down frost, green thrives, the crops don't fail sometimes. A people aims high and all goes well. A people sometimes will step back from war, elect an honest person decide they care enough that they can't leave some stranger poor. Some nations become what they were born for. Sometimes our best intentions do not go amiss. Sometimes, we do as we were meant to the sun the sun will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seems hard frozen may it happen for you may it happen for us all amen